Amen. Thank you, Tanya. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in the book of John. We're going to start in chapter 8 today. So the word on the street is there's some kind of vote going on today. I don't know what it is for. I thought long and hard about what do you, what do you preach on? You know, what do you do? What do you say on a Sunday uh, like today? You know, and I thought, well, I guess I, I probably shouldn't give a campaign speech up here today. You know, my uh, Make Fisherville Great Again hats didn't make it in in time, so I couldn't pass those out. <laughs> probably shouldn't talk about how we're going to build a wall and the Methodists are going to pay for it. But today, I, I don't really want to talk about what I do. You know, when we did the question and answer times, there were some of those questions, you know, what would you do about this? What would you do about that? And those things are good questions. But today, I want to talk about... Uh, who I hope will be as a church, and what I hope will continue to grow to be as a church. You know, I feel like I, I preach plenty on the Great Commission, and I'll continue to preach on it, but Jesus did tell us there to go, therefore, and make disciples. So make disciples. But what we need to understand, what we need to think about is, you know, what's a disciple? What makes a good disciple? What makes a healthy uh, disciple? I mean, what are we after? What are we chasing? What are we pursuing? You know, because it only makes sense if you're going to make something, you kind of want to know what you're making first, right? You kind of want to know what you're going after first. Uh, I take, for instance, my boys, we, they love to play with Legos. We love to sit down and build with Legos. And now most of the time what we do is they, they simply sit down with a big giant pile and they make random things and then they leave them strode in the carpet for me to step on in the middle of the night. But every now and then we get to, we get to buy a new set. And it's always fun to get those instructions out and to walk through those instructions and to, at the end of the process, look and see that thing you made look just like the picture on the box. It's nice to know where you're headed. Or take, for instance, this. Yesterday, my boys, uh, they had their first coach pitch game, and uh, David Medford and, uh, and myself and a couple of other parents from the church are coaching this team, and uh, you know, there's a lot of things you have to do when you're coaching coach pits. It's kind of like herding cats at times, trying to get them all to do what you want to do. Um, and, and, but, you know, it, it would be extremely difficult for us to coach baseball if we had no idea how to throw a ball. We had no idea how to swing a bat, catch a ground ball. But instead, we, we can teach those things or at least attempt to teach those things because we do know what we're after. Now, coming back to the idea of a disciple, you know, sometimes when we think about discipleship, it's easy to reduce that to simply the reduction of sin. You know what? You're becoming a better disciple if you just sin less. But is that really all it is? A while back in um, children's church, we heard a story about what one of my kids did. Um, Teresa, I think, was the one that asked the question, asked uh, um, ask them, you know, okay, kids, what is what are some things that you shouldn't do? You know, what are some things that, that are not good for you to do? And one of my boys raised his hand, as Caleb raised his hand, and, and he told it, he told Mr. Teresa, he said, You shouldn't stick up your middle finger. <laughs> and we're like, Well, that's good. But then he added to it, unless you're doing it at the devil. <laughs> I don't know where he got it. <laughs> now we don't want him, we don't want him sticking up his middle finger. We, we teach him not to do those kind of things, but we also want him to understand that following Jesus is more than just moralism. You see, discipleship is more than sin reduction. It's an invitation to follow the master and to fulfill his mission. 
That's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. If we were to go to the Greek language and look up the word disciple, you would see that it's the word methetes, um, and it means a follower. It, it means a pupil, a student. It was a word that was pretty common at that time. It was not just something that the 12 disciples were called. It was something that was common that rabbis would have disciples, these men who would attach themselves to this rabbi and they would follow that man and they would want to imitate everything about his life and to fulfill his mission. And so we are Jesus' disciples. And when we look to the book of John, we see three occasions where Jesus gave us a definition where he said, if you are my disciple, you will do this. You will be this. This will characterize you. And I thought, what a beautiful picture it is. This is exactly what we ought to focus on at Fisherville, what we already do, but what we continue to need to do, who we need to be. And so I want to go to, first of all, to John chapter 8, verse 31. And I want us to see where Jesus talks about this, that healthy disciples abide in God's Word. That if we're going to teach people to be disciples, we have to teach them first to abide in God's Word. John chapter 8, verse 31 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so disciples of Christ abide in His words. And that means first and foremost as a church, as a Christ-loving, Bible-believing church, we must continue to go to whatever lengths we have to go to to whet people's appetites to make them want to abide in the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so if that's true, if this Bible really is the inerrant, inspired, perfect Word of God, if that is what it is, and if it's as beneficial as what that passage just said, if it's profitable for all those things, if that is true, then you can't possibly claim to follow Jesus without living in the Word. You can't be walking with Jesus and ignoring His Word. Now, we don't usually use that word abide much. I can't tell you the last time I heard someone use the word abide in a conversation where do you abide today? No, I, I've, never, I've never heard that. Um, but, but I thought of something, I actually thought of this years ago um, to kind of help me understand it, and maybe it'll help. Do, do we have any sweet tea drinkers in the house today? Anybody like some sweet tea? Now, if you like unsweet tea, what I'm about to tell you is going to mean nothing to you. And so I'm so sorry. I apologize to you because, you know, God has called you to your form of punishment. But... <laughs> Now, let's, let's say that you go and you, you boil up your, you know, you make your big, your big pot of sweet tea, pitcher of sweet tea, and you just pour that thing up. And Now, once you pour it in there, you haven't added the sugar yet. Now, it's tea, right? But it's just not right. It's not perfect yet. Now, what happens when you, you know, you, you get that big old scoop of sugar, cup of sugar, whatever your recipe is, you put it in there, you stir it up, and presto, what's it become? Sweet tea. Mmm. Tastes good with everything, doesn't it? Now, what happened to that sugar? 
it dissolved, right? It became a part of the tea. It's, it's there. Now, you can't physically see it, but it is sweetening every single ounce of that tea, correct? And can you remove the sugar back from the tea? I don't think so. I couldn't find a scientist to confirm that with me today, but I don't think you can. It's there. It's a part of every single little drop of that tea. And that's what it means to abide in the Word. It it, it means that as we regularly consume it, as it comes into our lives, as we read it, as we study it, as we memorize it, as we meditate on it, it becomes a part of who we are. And therefore, it then begins to come out of every ounce of our being. Just like that sugar comes into the tea and abides in the tea, the Word comes into us and abides in us and then impacts every single ounce of our being. The Word is in us and we are in the Word to the point that they cannot be separated. And that's abiding. And as a church, we must always be a place that encourages, that that calls on people to abide in the Word, to stand firm on the Word, to teach it unashamedly, to challenge each other to live according to the Word. That's a disciple. That's a healthy disciple. But it didn't end there. Jesus also said this. Flip over to John chapter 13. Jesus makes another mention of this same kind of idea where He tells us what a disciple does. And if the first one is a a vertical thing as far as our relationship between us and the Word of God and God, this one is a horizontal thing. It's how we relate to one another uh, that shows that we're disciples. John chapter 13, verse 34. We're going to see here that healthy, healthy disciples love one another. Verse 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, if you were to flip over to the book of Acts and you begin to read through the early church, you would see that this kind of love was very evident. That that all over the place, you saw them caring for each other. You saw them sacrificing to meet physical needs. You saw them praying for one another. You saw them encouraging each other. You saw them challenging each other, holding each other accountable. And so there was a Christ-like love that was very obvious in that church, and it must still be obvious here today. In fact, we can't call ourselves a healthy church if the church isn't loving each other. And the other thing is we have to see here is that a Christian who is disconnected from the body of Christ, who is not living in fellowship of the, in the fellowship of the church, is missing out on, on a very important piece of the puzzle that Jesus has called us to live in community. When you go to that verse, that that one another there, Jesus is primarily speaking of our love for each other as believers. He's talking to his disciples um, about their relationship together, that they are to love each other. Not to say that we don't love the world, because we do love them trying to bring them to the gospel, but that love begins here, that we are called to love each other as brothers and sisters in, in Christ. You know, and in a day and age where people equate friendship with with followers and with likes and with retweets and where people are more likely to hide behind their screens than to talk to their neighbors, God's Word reminds us that we need one another. That we cannot go it alone. Now, we find several places in Scripture that, that give us examples of how that love is played out. Like in James chapter 5, where it talks about how that loving one another means to pray for each other, both for spiritual and for physical healing. 
John, James 5, 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We are called to pray for each other, both for spiritual deliverance and for physical deliverance from sickness. You know, I had a neat experience this past week. I was visiting one of our senior saints in a hospital, and uh, she's in Miss Martha's class. And uh, we were talking, and as I was kind of wrapping up the visit, and I was just about to pray for her, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to slip out, and uh, I've got to go down to Labonner and, and see this, this little baby that's in there. And, and she started asking me about the, the baby, little Asher, and I was telling her about Asher and about the parents. And, and this is what she said, and I thought this was a perfect example of this. She said, well, she said, I don't know them, but I can sure pray for them. That's love. That's, that's the love we're talking about. That, that when, we love for each, when we have a love for each other, we pray for each other. You know, loving each other also means meeting needs. Over in Matthew 25, Jesus said that in, that, in that illustration, that, 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 that parable of the sheep and the goats, he says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. I hear stories about this kind of stuff that go on all the time, especially through our Sunday school classes. But one class in particular, just because I, I personally experienced it, um, has to be Chuck Beaver's class, uh, one of our young married Sunday school classes. Um, I don't know if y'all realize this, but there's something in the water. People keep, keep getting pregnant in that class. They keep having babies. Ain't that right, John? I need to clean out the coffee pot or something because something's happening in that classroom. Um, but you know, what's, what's really, really, really neat is, you know, whether it be pregnancies or surgeries or, or, or deaths in the family or whatever it is, um, I have watched that group of, of that, 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 the class um, come together and care for one another over and over and over and over and over again. And never be exhausted by it, but be encouraged by it. Be excited about the opportunity to show their love for one another. And it's not something that is driven by the Sunday school teacher even. It's not Chuck and Kathy saying, now we need to do something. No, it comes from within because they love each other. But you know, also too, to love one another is to hold each other accountable. Galatians 6, it says, brothers, if any... Anyone is caught in transgression. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, it might seem kind of contradictory to say, well, okay, accountability does not sound loving. You might think to yourself, that doesn't sound very loving for me to have to point out someone else's faults. But you know, there's nothing more loving than to lead someone the faithfulness in Christ and the spirit of gentleness. That, that we can say, we can look at it, and, and yes, it could definitely be judgmental if it's not done with love. But when it's done with love, you are literally, literally saving someone from the consequences of sin. What could be more loving? But you know, there's a bigger purpose. There's a grander purpose here. Look in verse 35, John 13, 35. This is what Jesus said. He told us the bigger purpose is evangelism. He says that by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
The people out there will know that we're followers of Christ because of the way that we love each other, the way that we treat one another, the way that we handle disagreements, the way that we walk in unity, the way we care for each other and, and meet needs. Our witness to the world is dependent upon our love for each other. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what healthy disciples do, and that's what we have to be as a church and have to continue to encourage as a church. And then lastly, this thing, and then I'll close, healthy disciples bear fruit. Go over to John 15, just a page or so over to John 15. In John 15, Jesus has given that illustration of the vine and the branches. You probably have read this before. I hope you have. If not, go read John 15 tonight. It's a beautiful passage, and Jesus is basically saying that he is the vine and that we are the branches, and he comes right back to that idea of abiding that we talked about a minute ago. Look in verse 4. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now skip down to verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And so what comes naturally for the believer is that when we are abiding in Christ, we ought to bear fruit. Healthy trees ought to produce fruit. Now, people debate about what that fruit is. Some point to the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. Some point to obedience and love. Some point to converts. Paul oftentimes speaks of converts as fruit. But I think, it's, I think we can't really limit it to one thing. We can't really say that fruit is just one specific thing. You know, even in this one chapter, in verse 10, Jesus speaks of the fruit of obedience. Verse 11, the fruit of joy. Um, verse 12, he talks about our love for one another once again. And so I think to bear fruit is simply to allow the full life of the vine to come out through the branch. To allow the attitude and the heartbeat and the mind of Christ to come out of us, to come through us and our actions and our attitudes and our words as the branch of Christ. Now you would expect if you were to walk up to a healthy apple tree to find what? Oranges? No, you'd expect to find healthy apples, right? And if you walked over to a grapevine, you would expect to find healthy grapes, correct? Not blueberries or something else, right? And, and so the vine of Christ ought to produce Christ-likeness, the fruit of Christ-likeness coming out of us in every single way imaginable. Now consider this as well. If you took a perfectly healthy tree and put it in a perfect environment like there is that, but let's just imagine that there was. Perfect environment, and that thing had time to grow and to mature and, and, and was fed the right things, had the right amount of sunshine, just the right amount of rain. It ought to produce fruit, right? It ought to be there. But if that environment was less than perfect, then what would happen? Those outside conditions might keep it from producing fruit. It might be things like frost or... Um, Memphis weather, or uh, you know, the, the hot and the cold and the hot and the cold and the hot and the cold, or it might be drought, or it might be too much rain, it might be insects or whatnot. Well, you know, as disciples of Christ, we are connected to the perfect vine. 
Jesus is the perfect vine, the healthy, life-giving vine. And so our failure to produce fruit is not the fault of the vine. It's the fault of the branch, whether it be because we're not abiding with him in prayer and in the word and in the community of the church, or whether it be because we have allowed things from the outside to begin to harm the fruit, things like the frost of a cold or a broken relationship with someone, the parasite of a distracted mind, the weed of an overscheduled, overbusy life, the drought of going through extended time periods without being in the Word of God, the flood of doubt of thinking God's never going to keep His promises here. But I add this, to, to all that, I'll add this. You know, when it comes to Christ's commands, there really is no such thing as cannot. Instead, we, we, our cannot is actually a will not. You know, we cannot truthfully say, I cannot obey this command if Philippians 4 tells us that I can do all things through Christ. And so to say I cannot is really to deny the power of the vine that lives within us. And while I'm on that subject of cannot and will not, let me be clear to say that one fruit that God has called us to produce, has called to come forth from our lives, is a desire to make other disciples. A desire to make disciples. Now, while we can't limit fruit to one thing, what we sure cannot keep it from being is making disciples, making converts. Jesus speaks of it here. Look in verse 16. Chapter 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should then abide. And so he's talking here of another person. He's saying, you bear fruit, and then that fruit will begin to abide as a branch. And then he says down in verse 27, And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And so we must be defined by the mission of God to see this world come to Christ. You know, if you were to take an apple and you were to cut it open, what would you find on the inside of that apple? Seeds. And so God has placed within that very apple the design and the ability to reproduce itself, to make another apple. And that's what he's put within us. A, a, a need, a, a, a command to make disciples. Healthy disciples bear fruit, and that includes making disciples. This morning as we wrap things up, I just want to ask to the believers in the room today, how is your life as a disciple? You know, the truth is, is that if you are a Christian, you are a disciple. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not a disciple of Jesus. The question is, how faithful, how faithful are you as a disciple? If disciple means follower, how close are you following the Savior? Are you abiding in the Word? Are you reading it? Are you praying through it? Are you studying it? Are you memorizing it? Are you using it in your life to guide your steps? Are you abiding in the community of the church? Are you, are you living in the love and the fellowship of the church. And when you look at your life, are you bearing fruit? Is the life of Christ coming out from within you? If that's not the case, 
then I think it begs to ask, why not? What is it about our life that isn't causing us to follow closer? And today, if you were here and you are not a follower of Jesus, you've never given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, why don't you let today be that day where you become a follower, where you surrender your heart and your life to Jesus and allow him to make you new? We would love to talk with you about that today. Would you pray with me? Father, I do pray as we come into this time of invitation that you would work through our hearts, work through our lives, that, that for those here who are, are not Christians, who are, who, are, who are lost, I pray that you would convict them of their sin, give them a desire to want to follow you, to want to surrender their life to you. I pray that today would be the day we would get to celebrate new disciples. And Father, for the believers in this room today, I pray that we would ask ourselves, how faithful of a disciple am I? And if there are things that need to change, if there are sins that need to be confessed, I pray that today would be that day. And I pray for us as a church today, Father, that we would recommit ourselves to being a disciple-making church we would not be content with people just simply sitting in pews, sitting in chairs, attending a service, but we would want to see people digging deeper into your word, growing deeper in the relationship and becoming more and more faithful in carrying out your mission. Father, we pray as we come to this time of invitation that you would work, that we would listen, we would respond in faith. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. Stand as we sing.